Yes, what a dream team. Um, yeah, if, hopefully you're feeling inspired after that. I feel energized. I'm looking forward to tomorrow morning. I mean, last week they were literally lugging an industrial cooker down a staircase, and they just thought we were not expecting that. And then straight into the Leadership Development Year program, looking at theology. So um, there you go. Uh, what a beautiful thing. Well, last year, uh, last year, last week, last week, gosh, how it's flown. Last week, uh, we started a new sermon series looking at the power of. And we kicked off with the power of the gospel. The gospel, the herald of good news of Jesus that has the power to transform lives and communities. Because it is the power of God at work in us. This is why the Apostle Paul, when he writes to the Romans, says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. And as a community here who want to see lives and communities transformed, the power of the gospel has to play its part if we are to see the impossible made possible because anybody and everybody can receive that gift of salvation as they believe. It is an almighty promise over us and over our city. In fact, over our nation, there is power in the gospel. We're all well and good, but we move on to the second topic in our series. What do you make of this? The power of the cross. Does that idea make you raise an eyebrow? Let's for a moment take a second to consider what that looks like. I don't know if you've ever played the game Articulate. Any fans of, fans of Articulate here? Has anyone played Articulate? Some of you are like, yes, yeah, okay. I mean, it was one, at one point I felt like it was overplayed. It just came out ev- like every day at Christmas. Well, if you've not played it, it's fairly simple. Uh, you sort of join a bit of a team and you have to describe something, describe a word without using that word. Simple as that. And uh, I've got some words in just a moment, we won't put them up just yet, that I'd like you to describe to the person next to you. So I just need you to partner up very quickly. One of you will need to put your head to the floor and look at the floor so you can't see the screen. Otherwise, that would be cheating. And the person who's not looking at the carpet is going to describe the word to you and you need to guess it. So really simply, if the word on the screen was potato, you might say, oh, oh, it's it's a spud, grows in the ground. You say potato, yes, great. Then you move on to the next word. Simple as that, okay? So you've got yourself into a, into a pair if, if, you want to, if you want to play this. Decide who's going to look at the floor and who's going to describe. Okay. If you are listening, some, some people are putting blindfolds on. You're getting into this already. Uh, okay. If, you are, if you're going to guess, you need to look to the carpet now so you can't see the screen. Okay. As soon as they appear, the slide comes up, you can start the game. Okay, Jim, hit it. Here we go. Off you go. You've got three things to describe. Off you go. And by the way, when you've got all three, you can shout something, articulate or something. Anyone passed the first one yet? You've done it. All three. You've done it. Okay, we're some winners. Going to give you just five more seconds. Four, three, two, one. Stop right there. Okay. You can take a look at the screen now. So um, I think the person who got it the quickest. Oh, it was a joint. It was a joint one. Okay. (laughs) 
Well, I wonder how you went about describing God, um, particularly when it's paired with the word power, power and God. Maybe you made some obvious connections. You might think power and God, describing God, God the creator who flung stars into space, God who parted the Red Sea and, and led his people from a place of slavery to a place of freedom, God who wins battles for his people, the God who heals the sick and raises the dead through the ministry of Jesus. It seems that God and power seem to go together quite nicely, but then you, you find this, this other one, you know, the, the words power and the cross of Christ seem to not go together quite so well. It seems like an oxymoron, a, a contradiction in terms. I mean, the cross is a symbol of, of execution. It's a, a symbol of death, of humiliation. It's hardly a winning attribute on the surface. In fact, you could say that the very idea of power and the cross is complete foolishness. On the surface, it seems powerless, power loss, power down. I don't know if you find this, but, but sometimes when it comes to sharing our faith with others, and you know, we go to talk about God and specifically talk about Jesus, we can steer around the cross of Christ part because it just seems a little bit difficult. I know I can. That seems like a bit of a, a difficult concept to work around. Just have a think for a moment the, about the words or the phrases that you use to describe the significance of Jesus. If you find yourself in a conversation and you're talking about Jesus with someone, if that comes up, what do you tend to say to someone? What word or what words or, or what connections do you make? Just with your game buddy very quickly to say, what are some of the things you would instantly go to? What are your go-tos when you talk about Jesus? Just take a, a couple of moments uh, just to discuss that with the person next to you. Okay, we'll draw it back in there. Draw it back in there. You know, I know for me that I find the, the cross of Christ part, the bit that can be a little bit tricky. Have you ever found yourself wondering how on earth you are to articulate the good news message about Jesus when the very Jesus you are talking about was outcast, rejected, disowned, nailed to a cross? It doesn't sound promising. In fact, the cross of Christ can be a stumbling block to explain, let alone believe. We're going to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 18 to 25, where we'll see that pitching Jesus to others seems like utter foolishness. Now, you're going to have to use the Bibles on your phones if you've got them. I've also got it up here on the screen. And you might just find it helpful to keep this, uh, this open, because I'll be referring back to it a few times as we uh, look at some of the verses there. So that was 1 Corinthians 1, 18 to 25. This is what uh, Paul writes to the church in Corinth. He says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. The intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? 
has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. For to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. So just keep that in mind, keep that open, so we can flick back and look at that a bit later on. So if the gospel is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, then the cross is the power of God and the wisdom of God. The cross is the power of God and the wisdom of God. So Paul says that this is a major stumbling block for the Jews, and to the Greeks it's simply utter foolishness, which is, I think, a bit of a problem when most of his audience is made up of Jews and Greeks, and they seem to be the influential people of the day who seem to be speaking the narrative to the people. I wonder whether some of the words you used in that game of articulate to describe the cross of Christ were things like, oh, foolishness, foolishness, or absurdity, or moronic. I don't know if you used those words. You know, I can remember a conversation I had with a friend of mine a few years ago who said that they thought the very idea of Jesus dying on the cross just to be a bit grossed just to be a bit gross, to be a little bit sick. He said, it's really not the sort of story we should be telling children. And I tried to explain it in some sort of fumbling fashion, but it was essentially just too big a blocker for him. For him, it was just utter foolishness, made no sense whatsoever. And he thought that I was just a bit of a fool for going with it. You know, I think that that view of the cross is not unusual. And I think this is why Paul highlights it. Paul was claiming Jesus Christ to be the Son of God, God himself in human form, God incarnate, God in flesh. The very concept of Christ crucified to the Jews was simply ludicrous. For the Jews, they would hold on to a a passage within their Old Testament law, something like uh, Deuteronomy 21-23. It made it very clear that anyone who was hung on a pole was under God's curse. Well, Jesus was essentially hung on a pole. He was cursed. So it simply didn't compute that God's chosen one, God himself, God the Son, could end up on a cross, nor was it comprehensible that God's chosen one, the Messiah, would or could suffer, despite there being a number of prophecies that talked about the suffering Messiah. You know, these these people, the Jews, were expecting a Messiah who would show them some pretty amazing signs and wonders, a a valiant Messiah. Indeed, at Paul's time of writing, in fact, there were other people claiming to be the Messiah, claiming to take on that position of the Son of God. And sure enough, they were managed to to deceive and trick a whole number of people. Tens of thousands of people would follow these false messiahs. And then we have Paul's Messiah, this Jesus who seemed meek and lowly by comparison, who seemed to avoid the spectacular, or at least what they were looking for anyway. So Paul's not really winning the Jews over with this 
cross of Christ, this power on the cross. It just didn't make sense. And then you had the Greeks, the other influential voice of the day. You know, in Greek thought, the, the characteristic of God, their understanding of God was, was a word it, it called apatheia. You may have heard of the, the term apathy. Well, it was more than that. Apathia meant total inability to feel. Their idea of God was that God had to have the total inability to feel. So if God had the ability or has the ability to feel joy and sorrow and anger and grief, then some human being has influenced God and is therefore greater than God. So for God to be God in, in their minds, God must be uh, incapable of having all feeling so that no one could ever affect him, so that no one could ever be above him. Plutarch, uh, the historian and philosopher, declared it an insult to God to involve him in human affairs. So the Greeks' concept of God, which Paul is touching on, was that God was utterly detached. He was impersonal, distant, other. The idea of God being flesh and blood of being incarnate was simply revolting. It was a total impossibility. So Paul's finding this to be a pretty tough gig. He's talking about the cross of Christ. He's talking about power in the cross, and they're just not buying it because the very concept makes no sense to them. The Greeks wanted wisdom. The Jews wanted signs. They were not buying it. So in rolls Paul, he comes and he writes to the church to encourage them, and he's mindful of the influences that are around them, the people who are talking about who God could be and who the Messiah would be. And so Paul, the uh, Christian preacher, you might say, brings in this blunt message that would seem so crude by comparison, so uncultured, so unsophisticated, and he comes in with a really simple message, the message of the cross. It seems almost laughable, something not to be listened to, not something to be respected. As verse 23 puts it, he says, we preach Christ crucified. And he says, that simply is a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. This was the simplicity of the message of the Christians, their message of power. You know, there was um, a Christian who lived in Rome or was in Rome around the second century. He was called Alexamenos. We don't know much about him other than he too preached this very simple, very crude message of Christ crucified. And we know this because there's a piece of Roman graffiti scratched into a wall in Rome, ridiculing Alex for his stupid, foolish message about some Messiah on a cross. Uh, this is a picture of it. And here you have this depiction of Christ on the cross with the head of an ass. And there is Alex. Hello. He's like waving. And Alex is simply being mocked. In the Greek, it reads, Alex Amanos worships his God. Alex, to the culture, to the world, was simply a moron. Alex had the power of stupidity. He was a silly Christian. I wonder when it comes to talking about the cross of Christ, whether you've ever felt like a silly Christian, whether you've ever felt like you've been lost for words or people look at you and go, you're just an utter fool. You really believe that? How do we really grasp the power of the cross when we're faced with things like this? 
you know, I, I think it seemed like the gospel was doomed, especially in the context of the Jewish or Greek background. But if we top and tail our passage in 1 Corinthians and we look at verses 18 and verses 24 to 25, this is what we read. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And then at the end, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. In other words, the ability to grasp the power of the cross is not a matter of religiosity, how religious we are, striving to get right with God outside of our relationship with God, nor is it down to our intellect. It is quite the opposite. God, in his wisdom, has revealed his very nature in character and his character as a personal saving God through the cross. It was God's free and sovereign choice that he would save us by the way of the cross and that we would not save ourselves by our religious practices and that we would not save ourselves by our own intelligence. And so the cross is the way to God's timeless wisdom and is at the very center point of the gospel. This is the God that he chose to be. The God who is personal, the God who chose to die on a cross for you and for me. You see, the Christian, whether it's Alex Amanos or whether it's you or whether it's me, has to go the way of the cross. And both Jew and Greek and everyone in between has the means to do so if we are to grasp the power of the cross. If we are to see beyond the worldly viewpoint, the foolish viewpoint, to see what really lies beyond you see, the power of the cross is a contradiction in terms. Until that is, we are being saved, and the very weak thing of God, the weak God on the cross, becomes stronger than any human can ever manage. And so it is the power of the cross that can transform you because Jesus died for you. I can remember a few years ago borrowing my brother's laptop. He kindly lent it to me. And... Um, all was well until I left it unaccompanied and came to use it to find that it had been stolen. And obviously, I had to break the news to him. Uh, but ultimately, I knew that I would have to uh, pay the price at some expense and replace it. And I was able to, like for like. And um, you may find yourself in a sit similar situation. Sometimes you can sort of sort that out and make it work. But in some cases, um, we can't pay the price. We find ourselves not able to meet the demand. And what if your wrongdoing, what if your mistake is against God himself and there's no way to pay God back? You know, we, there's, a, there's a word for this um, inherent inability to fall short of God's glorious standard, and we call that sin. And sin is a little bit of an issue as it breaks down our relationship with the God who loves us. Paul puts it like this to the Corinthians a bit later on in chapter 15. He, he says, Christ died... For our sins, according to the scriptures. He was buried and he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. And he appeared. So Christ died for our sins. Christ died for that which we cannot pay back to God for the things we've done wrong. A few years later, Paul develops his gospel message into a fuller mandate as he writes to the church in Rome and to the Romans. 
Uh, He puts it like this in Romans chapter 3. We've got the passage just up here. In essence, Paul proves all people, whether Jew or Greek or anyone in between, to be guilty before God. In other words, everyone's got this inherent sin problem. He says we're all guilty before God because of our sin. And that the only way of putting the unrighteous, that's the sinful, right with God comes through the redemption that came through Christ Jesus. In other words, the only person who can sufficiently pay the price and pay God back is Christ who was perfect. And the price that was paid by Christ on the cross was that of, his, uh, of himself. He sacrificed himself on the cross to atone for our sins. He was the only one who could be an all-sufficient sacrifice. Therefore, without Christ, sacrifice for us, salvation would simply be impossible because it cannot be achieved by our religious practice. It cannot be achieved by our own wisdom. In other words, as Romans 6 puts it, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And and if you just cast your mind back to Alex Amanos, standing there at the foot of the cross, he was mocked for his belief in the saving God on the cross. But the irony is that if it was not Alex Amanos there looking up at his God on the cross, it would be him himself because the wages of sin is death. If Christ has not stood in as the substitute, he would have to die instead. The beauty of the God who breaks through into our world, God incarnate, God in flesh, dying on the cross in a deeply personal way is that he stands on the cross in our place. Christ died for you in your place so that you could be saved from perishing. To the perishing, it's foolishness. To those who are being saved, it is the very power of God. You know, as we prepare to head into the sort house, God willing, on Easter Sunday, we've been praying for for three things. The first of those things is praying for 50 people to know the power of the cross. To see that actually it doesn't need to be them who have to die in the place of their sin, but that God himself, Jesus Christ, on the cross, has died for them. Our prayer is that 50 people would know life in all its fullness, would know that transformation. I wonder, are you one of those 50 people who are ready to embrace the power of the cross in your life, to know that you don't need to get all religious on God, you don't need to use your own wisdom and intellect, but actually you can see the power that God has in the cross because he died for you. Perhaps you know someone, you know one of those 50. What would it mean for you to pray for them every day from now till Easter? What would it mean for those around you to know the true power of the cross, to know God's wisdom? The power of the cross transforms you and it transforms me. It's deeply personal because as Galatians 2.20 puts it, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. This is not a distant God. This is a personal God, and he died for you. It's personal, but it's not individualistic. The power of the cross also transforms us. Jesus' death on the cross was not to isolated human beings, but to create a new community, a people of his kingdom, a people who belong to him, a people he can call his own, who will love one another and will serve his 
world. This is what Jesus calls the church. It says in verse 21 in our passage that God was pleased to save those who believe through the foolishness of the cross. And it was at Pentecost, the very birth of the church, that people were baptized not only into, life, into the life of the church, but they found a new belonging in the life. So they're baptized into the life of Christ, but they found a new belonging in the life of the church. The two go together. We're baptized into Christ, and we're also born into the life of the church itself, into this community. The second thing we're praying for is that we would have a regular worshiping congregation of 500 people. You know, when we planted, we started with about 20 of us, and we're now sort of regular congregation on a Sunday of, of about 300 people. We'd like to see more, not because we're simply counting the numbers, but because we want to see people going deeper in their faith. We want more people to encounter the love of God and learn to live more like Jesus. We want people to discover in their everyday lives the power of the cross and the transformation that it brings. I just you know, wonder, as we head towards that point, we, we're getting ready to throw a big party to celebrate not a building project, but to celebrate us as a church family, the people of God, ready to throw a party for people outside of our family to say, hey, look, this is what it looks like to be community. This is what it looks like to live in the power of the cross. I wonder, who are you bringing along to the party? And what part are you going to play in throwing this party for those outside of there? So the power of the cross transforms me and you. It transforms us. But it also transforms society. Church community is a renewed and redeemed community who share in the life, the death, and the resurrection of Christ. It is made up of Jew and Greek. It's made up of the weak and the foolish, of the strong and the wise on equal terms. And what makes us, the church, distinct from any other organization, any other charity, is that it all centers on the cross. Christ died on the cross in abject loneliness, on a rubbish heap, outside the walls of an empire of prestige, rejected by his own people, deserted by his own disciples. It was utter foolishness. And in doing so, he confronts a world of posturing, of power, of status. And he overthrows it to set up his own kingdom, where the power of the gospel is God's power for salvation. Where the herald sounds out and where lives and communities are transformed in Jesus' name. We are the inheritors of that great kingdom, of that great twist in history. We get to be the people who live and bring a distinct change in our society. All because God's wisdom is given to us. You know, when we are transformed by the power of the cross, we start to see people. We start to see the world differently. We get to have a bigger vision of what's possible. God changes our minds and he changes our hearts so that we can play our part in the transformation of society. You know, our third prayer point is we're praying for a million pounds to finish that project over at the Salt House, simply because we know that at every point through the project so far, God has provided at just the right time. It seems that our God has deep pockets. He's not restricted by our crazy prayers. In fact, he's exceeded them every time. Why? Because we want to flash new building? No, because we want to, to use it, to steward it well, to play our part in the transformation of society. 
We want to see young people coming through for Youth Hub. We want to see college students coming in. We want to see the lonely find a place that they can call a home and so much more. It's about, with the wisdom of God, seeing a bigger vision. It's about the power of the cross transforming society. My question to you is this. How will the cross change the way you see the situations that you face in your life and the people you meet tomorrow? Just thinking about tomorrow before we even get to Easter, even before the Salt House opens, how does the power of the cross change the way that you see the world? How will it affect the decisions that you make? And then how might this cross-centered outlook lead you to a place where you're seeing many people come to faith in Jesus, where you get to see church community flourish, and where you get to see society transformed? Will the cross of Christ, Christ be a stumbling block for you to try and explain? Or will it be the very power of God that has set you free? Will it unlock for you the power of the gospel? You know, I, I think it's simply not enough to grasp the manageable parts of Jesus without the cross taking center stage. If we do, if we ignore the cross of Christ, then we just make fans of Jesus. We're just part of his fan club. But the cross is the power of God to transform lives. And that's our great prayer for you, for us, and for them. So may you, with great confidence and great joy, be an utter fool for Christ. Amen. Can I invite you to stand?